Well, good morning. My name is Bill Reese. I serve as one of the elders here at Trinity Church. I've been an elder here for the last two years. Uh, prior to that, for quite a number of years, I had served on the, the finance team. Uh, my wife and I have been attending Trinity Church, been members uh, for about 20 years. Um, we have two uh, children who are no longer children who grew up here in Trinity Church. They are now living in Dallas with their families. Um, uh, for over 20 years, uh, I've worked over at um, Tulane University in the business school. And uh, during my free time, I like to do a little bit of exercise now and then. Um, so uh, that's a little bit about me to, to get that over with. And if you have not picked up on it, during this month of transition between David McMartin and uh, Marcus, um, uh, the elders, uh, uh, three of us, have stepped forward to, uh, to be delivering the messages this, this Sunday morning with a decision that we wanted to set the bar really low for Marcus when he came <laughs> at that point in time. So at any rate, uh, as you probably are aware, the name of our church is Trinity Church. Yet the word Trinity is nowhere to be found in the entire Bible. Still, it's probably the most important attribute of who the God we worship is. Now, there are entire books written on the topic of the Trinity. There are semester-long seminary courses that are written on the topic of the Trinity. We're going to delve into it for about 30 to 40 minutes, however. So I think we need to open up with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it... You have given us everything we need to know about you and your love for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and ears this morning to your word so that we might know you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's start with a simple question. But like I often do when I'm teaching my students at Tulane, it's a little bit of a trick question. Is God three or is God one? Yes is the correct answer. Both would have sufficed as well. Our one God exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, each person is fully God and fully worthy of praise and worship. Each has existed with the other two in eternity past, since before the creation of the world. Each has a different role in redemptive history. Now, can we fully understand this? This is not a trick question. The answer is no. Though many attempts have been made, here's a couple of those attempts to try to explain this. Does anybody know who this is? Peter, Paul, and Mary. Are they three or are they one? Both. Peter, Paul, and Mary, the group, are one. Peter, Paul, and Mary, individual singers, are Three different ones. So this must be a good uh, analogy to the Trinity, right? Well, in that respect it is, but not entirely. Because who is this? Mary Travers. Is she Peter, Paul, and Mary? No, she isn't. She's one-third of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yet God the Father is entirely God, not one-third. God the Son is entirely God, and God the Holy Spirit is also entirely God. Yet Peter, Paul, Mary as individuals are only one-third of the group. So that illustration doesn't completely, doesn't completely go. Let's try another one. Here's a single molecule of H2O, right? Two hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom that are bonded. One thing. Yet here we have it appearing as a solid, a liquid, and a gas. 
So H2O can be three, H2O can be one. And it can be all three of them. The, the ice is fully H2O, the water is fully H2O, and the vapor is fully H2O. A good analogy of the Trinity, right? Not exactly. Because a single water molecule, a single H2O molecule, cannot be all three at the same time. And the three, the solid, the liquid, and the gas, from a single H2O molecule cannot interact with each other. Yet the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all there at the same time, and they interact with each other. Now, just because we can't fully understand or illustrate something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. My three-year-old granddaughter can't understand how our complex financial system works. Here's a little illustration of it right here. So what I do is I simplify and I tell her what she can understand. I tell her we take money to the bank and we let them hold it for us so it won't get lost. When we need it, they give it back to us. I skip all the parts about interest, commercial lending, required reserves, deposit insurance, and the role of the Federal Reserve. Not because they don't exist, but she isn't capable of understanding it, and she doesn't need to understand it. Her grandfather understands. And out of my love for her, I tell her what she needs to know and how to make the wise decision to begin saving her money. Here's probably the best illustration that I could find anywhere on, of the Trinity. Simple relationship here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each fully God. They're each separate from each other, however. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And they interact with each other. They are all three God at the same time. A.W. Tozer, the famous Christian author and pastor, once said, the most important thought that you ever think is what you think about when you think about God. Because what you think about when you think about God determines every other part of your existence. So thinking about God properly, the true God, is critical. We want to worship the God of the Bible. We don't want to worship a God who doesn't exist. So it's very important to know exactly who is the God of the Bible that we're worshiping. Now, this message this morning is going to focus on the doctrine of the Trinity. It's called Trinitarianism, and that's a subset of the doctrine of God. Now, doctrine simply means teaching things that are true, things about the Bible, things about Jesus, the gospel message. We can contrast that, if we will, with doxology. Doxology means to worship what we've just been doing. Giving God honor, glory, and praise. Loving God. Now, doctrine is often viewed, and probably to, to some extent this is true, as a lot of work. But doxology is more often seen as something that's enjoyable. Both are essential to the Christian life. But doctrine leads to doxology. Knowing God more fully and loving allows us to love him more deeply. The better we know God, the more our hearts will yearn to worship him and the more appropriate that worship will be. So, while acknowledging that our finite minds can't completely understand an infinite and triune God, let's focus on what we do know, what he's revealed to us through his word. In Deuteronomy, Moses writes, There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And you might remember several centuries afterwards, Christ said that this was the most important commandment. Now, it may not sound like a big deal to us, but when it was written, this idea that the Lord God is one was hugely radical claim. Everyone around the nation of Israel worshipped multiple gods. The idea that there was only one God was truly, at that point in time, a unique concept. Yet, this God exists as three different persons, all at the same time, all eternally. None was created from another. Let's see specifically what Scripture teaches us these principles. We all know Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second verse of the Bible says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, when it says the Spirit of God, it doesn't mean God's Spirit. It's saying the Spirit who was God. The Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of the world, starting in the very second uh, verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, this is clearly a plural passage and one of the most frequently cited evidences for the fact that God is triune. Now, you might want to remember that both Genesis and Deuteronomy were written by Moses, by the same person. So in Deuteronomy, Moses is writing that the Lord our God is one. And in Genesis, he's saying, let us make man in our likeness as a quotation of what God was saying. So the Old Testament is clearly telling us that it was the triune God who created man. In the New Testament the very beginning of the gospel according to John. The first three words are the same three words that began Genesis, in the beginning. Here in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, you might want to notice that John doesn't say in the beginning was Jesus. That's because he's referring to the second part of the Trinity rather than the man Jesus who was flesh and bones. Jesus came into existence in Mary's womb through the Holy Spirit. The Word, the Son of the Father, the second part of the Trinity, indwelt that human flesh and bones. John makes this a little bit more clear to us in the next couple of passages. John 1.14, he says, The Word, the second part of the Trinity, the Son, became flesh, meaning it was not, he was not always flesh, and dwelt among us, lived with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God. Note that it's clear in John's gospel that the Word, the Son, was not created by God. He was with God. Even more, he is God. This is before the creation of the world, and it says, through him all things were made. Now, if all things were made through the Son, the Son himself could not have been made if everything was made that was made was made through him. 
So in the beginning, we had the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son took part in the creation of the world. Everything that has been created was created by our triune God. John 17, verse 5. In his prayer to the Father the night before his crucifixion, Christ referenced this union from eternity past. He prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with your glory, with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, note that to glorify means to bestow praise and honor. Think of what Jesus is saying here. He's asking God to bestow praise and honor to himself. Now, this would be totally contrary to everything a Jewish person had ever been taught, to ask God to praise and honor yourself. Only God is worthy of praise and honor. Clearly, Jesus is equating himself with God. And then he goes on to state that he was with the Father before the world began. In the book of Hebrews, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Similarly, John chapter 14, Jesus answers one of his disciples saying, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, the writer of Hebrews, as well as Christ himself, clearly state that if you want to know who the Father is, look to the Son. Look to the Son. You don't need to look any further. You can almost hear the angst in Jesus' voice after Philip, one of the 12 disciples, asked Jesus to show them the Father. He says, Jesus, he says, Philip, how long have you been with me? Okay, don't you know that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father? Clearly, the Bible is presenting that Jesus is God. The Bible also presents the Holy Spirit as being God. We already looked at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and we saw that the Holy Spirit was with the Father during creation. In the book of Acts, in the early days of the church, after the ascension of Christ, Peter clearly equates the Holy Spirit with God. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have lied not just to human beings, but to God. See, Peter is saying that when Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, he lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Then in his final words on earth, Jesus gives his disciples this great commission in Matthew chapter 28. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular note, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you wouldn't tell someone to do something in the name of Peter, John, and James because they're three different people. You would say, do it in the names of Peter, John, and James. But Jesus is saying here to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because the three are one. Jesus is clearly equating the Holy Spirit with himself and the Father with himself and the Father with the Holy Spirit and all three with each other. So, 
What are the roles of our triune God? If we've got three, they must have different roles. And in fact, they do. Now, it's not a hierarchy, but it's really more of an order. Now, specifically, when it comes to our salvation, we can say that the Father initiates our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies our salvation. Let's start with the Father's role in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 says that he chose us before the creation of the world. He, the Father, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his, the Father's, pleasure and will. So our salvation was the Father's idea. He is the source of our salvation. He initiated our salvation. So what did the Father do next? He sent the Son to accomplish our salvation. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Note the different roles. The Father is never sent. The Father sends the Son. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Father initiates our salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God the Father made him, the Son, who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is the essence of the gospel message. Jesus Christ, who was God himself, accomplished our salvation by becoming sin for us on the cross. On the cross, Christ who was without sin himself, bore all our sins, past, present, and yes, even in the future, and paid the price for those sins so that we might become the righteousness of God and be able to enter into his presence. The Father initiates our salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. And now the Spirit applies our salvation. John chapter 16, Jesus says, All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So the Spirit, through Christ, is going to make something known to us. John chapter 15. Here, Jesus speaks to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the advocate, and advocate is a term Jesus used to refer to the Holy Spirit, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So, the Spirit is sent from both the Son and the Father. The Spirit was with the Father. And what is the purpose of the Spirit? To testify about Christ. Not to promote himself, but to say, look at the Son. Look at what Christ has done for you. John 14, 26. Jesus is speaking again. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is one of the critical roles of the Holy Spirit. To teach the disciples all things and to remind them of everything Christ had ever said. 
Now, for me, this gives me great assurance that we can trust the Scriptures because it's not just fallible men relying on their memory, but the Holy Spirit, God himself, reminding them of everything that Christ said and teaching them all things. What else does the Spirit do for us? Well, he helps us with our prayers. Romans chapter 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So even when we don't know how to pray or what to say, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf so that the Father hears and knows our prayers. So we've seen the following. We've seen that the Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit testifies about the Son. The Son is the revelation of the Father. And the Spirit helps reveal the Son to us. Notice how they all work together. How they glorify and point to each other, not each to themselves. Can we put this all together in one verse? Perhaps. And I apologize, this verse is not listed in your bulletin. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Here it's referencing us as believers. And it says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. The Father initiates in this verse. He chooses us. The Son accomplishes through his blood. And the Spirit applies. It says he sanctifies. That's a word meaning that he works in our lives to make us more like Christ. So, two very simple questions that can be answered, oh, probably five seconds each here, I'm sure. What did God do before the creation of the world? Why did God create the world? I think the key to the answer of both of these questions is found in a simple three-word truth that's in 1 John. God is love. Notice, John doesn't say that the Father is love, or the Son is love, or the Spirit is love, but that God, all three, is love. Notice John doesn't say that God loved, though he did, but that he is love. Note that John doesn't say that God became love, if he is love, he has always been love, and he always will be love. You see, this is not a description of God or some sort of a character trait. It is the essence of his being. It is who he is. So, what did God do before the creation of the world? He existed in perfect and complete love in the Trinity. He was totally fulfilled. He didn't need anything. He was complete. Think about it. Only a triune God could be love. Otherwise, before the creation of the world, who was there for God to love? You know, there's a popular notion that says that God created us because he, didn't, because he needed to make himself complete through having somebody to love. Well, that's totally wrong because through the Trinity, God already was complete. The Father loved the Son and the Spirit. 
from eternity. The Son loved the Father and the Spirit from eternity. And the Spirit loved the Father and the Son from eternity. Truly, it was the first love story. In John chapter 17, Christ is praying to the Father. He says, You loved me before the creation of the world. So from eternity past, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved and was loved. That allows us to say that God is love. All love originated from the love of the Trinity. So, why did God create? Only one reason. To share that love. God created the world to share the complete love that existed in eternity past among the Trinity. So, if God created us to share love, what does that make the foundational purpose of man as established by our Creator? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. As Jesus said, that is the first and most important commandment. It's the reason we were created, to share the love of the Trinity. But not for us to love and not be loved in return. You see, God first loved us. And as with the Trinity, God loves us completely. We see the Father expressing his love for the Son in a pivotal moment in mankind's history. The moment that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all audibly or visibly present at the same place and at the same time, the baptism of Jesus. As Mark records it, he says, Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice, the Father, from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Fast forward now to Jesus speaking with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. John chapter 15, he prays, or he says, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. So, the Father loves the Son. We heard the Father say it. We heard the Son acknowledge it. The Son loves us with that same love. The Trinity loved each other which includes the Father loving the Son. The Son loves us. What do you think the next step is? This is my command, love one another. So the love of the Trinity has been passed along to us to share with each other. In fact, not as a request, but as a command. The Trinity's love for each other, Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for us, our love for each other, all one love, starting with the Trinity. Now, there are some important implications of having a triune God. There's implications for marriage, missions, evidence for God uh, around the world, and the assurance of our salvation. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, let's remember at this time, Adam was in paradise. Sin had not yet entered the world. Adam's very happy with the way everything is. Adam did not tell God that he was lonely. So how would a singular God 
who had always been alone in eternity, know that it's not good for man to be alone? Well, the answer is he wouldn't. That would be the natural state of things if we had a singular God. But a triune God, enjoying each other's fellowship for eternity past, would know. For our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being alone is not the natural state of things. That is, that is how God knew that it wasn't good for man to be alone. So why was woman created? As a companion for man, yes, but also as an earthly representation of the love and the fellowship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for each other and have had since eternity past. You know, when it says in Genesis 2.24 that the man and his wife were united and became one flesh, that's the same word for one that Moses uses in Deuteronomy when he says that God is one. It's to be a representation of the Trinity. As we saw earlier, the Father sent the Son. That makes the Son the first missionary. He was sent by the Father to a very right mission field, earth. Like all good missionaries, he shared the good news of the gospel. The Holy Spirit was also sent by the Father and the Son. So missions began with the Trinity, the Father sending the Son, the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. The Trinity also leads to evidence of God for the world. Jesus prays to the Father in John chapter 17. He prays, my prayer is not for them alone. Now here them refers to the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Here Jesus is referring to us. Now we're several generations removed, but Jesus was praying for the disciples as well as to those who would believe in him through the message of the disciples passed on from generation to generation. He prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Christ is praying that we, the church, will be one just as the Father and the Son are one. Why? As evidence to the world that the Father sent the Son. See, our love for each other, the love of the triune God, is to be evidence to the world that the Father sent the Son. In the same passage, that they may be one as we are one, is what it says. That's a powerful concept. That the church may be one in the same way that the Father and Son are one. One church with many believers within that church. Each with their different roles. Just like the Trinity. Why? Well, that's the last sentence here. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's why. The final implication of the Trinity we're going to look at is the assurance of our salvation. The knowledge that if we are in Christ, we can never become not in Christ. Galatians chapter 2 says, For I have been crucified in Christ, 
And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, as believers, we no longer live by and for ourselves. Instead, Christ lives in us. Ephesians chapter 1. He, the Father, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So, through Christ living in us, we're adopted to sonship. Along with Christ, we are sons of the Father. Now, a couple years ago, I read that it's possible for natural parents to divorce their children, to dissolve their relationship as parents and children legally. However, I also found out this isn't allowed for adopted children. Parents may not divorce them. Legally, it's a forever relationship. Now, in the same way, when we're adopted by the Father through Christ, we can never lose that relationship. The Father loves us with the same love he has for the Son. Eternity past to eternity future. That is what it means to be in Christ. And what's the Holy Spirit's role in this? Ephesians chapter 1 says, When you believed, you were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to to the praise of his glory. Now, a deposit is a small amount that you initially receive in good faith that you will receive a greater amount later. The Holy Spirit is the initial deposit that we receive. He comes into our lives as believers and is our guarantee that as adopted sons and daughters, we will receive the Father's inheritance with the first son, Christ. The deposit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is given to us as an assurance of our salvation. Now, during the first few centuries of the church, several heresies arose. Now, heresy is an improper doctrine concerning some of the essential truths of our faith. So during the first few centuries, several heresies arose that the leaders of the Christian church needed to address. Several very important councils convened to establish statements of what Christians believed. One of those was the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. This council was held to address a heresy that was going around called Arianism, that Christ was not God eternal, but was a created being. That was the heresy. The result of this council was the Nicene Creed, which affirms the Trinity as a foundational and essential truth of our faith. Much of what we've talked about this morning is contained in the Nicene Creed. So I believe it would be fitting for us to stand and recite the Nicene Creed together. So if you will with me, stand and let's, if you're able to, and let's recite the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, 
True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. That kind of is a summary of what we as believers believe about the Trinity. Let's close in prayer, please. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for revealing yourself in your word. Thank you for initiating accomplishing and applying our salvation so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters into your family. Thank you for the love you have for each other, which you have shared with us. We worship you for who you are, our triune God. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>